I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. This book arrives at an extraordinary time... Um, in both the fortunes of the species that it concerns and also the way in which we are engaging as writers and readers and, uh, and interested people in the lives of those species. Birds of prey, in some ways, have never been as, 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 as potent a, a, a story as they, as they are at the moment. Um, the RSPB, which, as you'll know, has got a bigger membership than all the political parties of Britain put together, uh, is finding it very difficult to, to know what it thinks about the persecution of hen harriers. Um, the hen harrier, which is a signal bird in James's book, is um, on its last legs, in England at least, uh, because of the illegal, totally illegal persecution of the bird on grass moors um, owned by some of the richest invested, uh, entitled uh, people in the British Isles. Uh, or, and, and, and the killing of those hen harriers is, being, is going on at the instruction of um, some of the most powerful people in Britain today. Um, so, raptors, uh, 15 species James has written about, following them from Orkney in the north to Devon, I think is the furthest southwest you get, south, south, southwest. So 15 breeding species of bird, the raptors that he's focused upon is the other... Raptor, for those of you, etc. Raptors are birds of prey. Uh, Broadly, there are two two kinds of birds of prey that we know in in Britain. Owls and diurnal and nocturnal, if you like. Nocturnal birds of prey are owls. Diurnal, day-hunting birds of prey are are the raptors. Uh, That range includes fish eaters, like ospreys and white-tailed eagles, through to insect eaters like hobbies and merlins, uh, with lots of things in between, fantastically unplaced birds like harriers that kind of do a bit of everything, and falcons that we know to be you know, consummate uh, killers, and also slightly more uh, erratic birds, and, uh, honey buzzards, weird things that eat wax and bees and things, and wasps, stuff like that. James has been on pursuit of all of them, uh, and we'll, we'll start maybe with something, a, a kind of big question, which is about um, tackling, in a way, this, this charismatic group of birds that in some ways are kind of perennially interesting, but are particularly interesting now for a number of reasons. 
but which you've, you've gone into not necessarily from the most conventional points of view. Uh, I mean, they're birds that are meaningful to all of us in the, because they are charismatic and exciting and, and do big things like killing other things, but also because they're kind of vexed in their lives in Britain. Uh, we're uncertain how to live alongside those birds. We don't quite know how to do it. Mm. Tell me, tell us where, where the book kind of began mm. for you. Yeah. Hello, everyone. Hi. Hi. It's lovely to be here. And uh, I want to say thank you to Tim uh, for being here because I know he's been traveling a lot recently. And it's, it's not, um, I don't often get an email from someone saying hello from Nanjamina, the capital of Chad, Injamina. which is, I think, um, where Tim was uh, even this week. So I'm, I'm very grateful and, and glad that he's here. Um, I, I think that one of the things that really interested me in the book as a project was that, that cent- central tension which Tim has just talked about, that the relationship between British birds of prey and people. And I wanted to explore that tension in the book as much as I could. It, it's been a, a, a very fraught relationship. And it, it, it's because that relationship has been so fraught that I was drawn to this project of writing about birds of prey in particular. I, I thought that would be an interesting tension, and an interesting scene to explore through the book. Um, so, uh, yes, they're, they're incredibly charismatic, very beautiful birds, but the, the tragedy that has surrounded our birds of prey in these islands, both historically and uh, today, as Tim has talked about with some of the birds, was something that really interested me, and I, I thought it would be um, provide a... Uh, an interesting scene to explore as I, as, I, as I went through the book. I'll ask you one more question, and then maybe we, we might hear a little bit, uh, mm. if you like, to, to, to give us a reading, a taste of what, what the thing sounds like. It's a fantastic book, amazingly original, and it's an amazingly original in a, in a very uh, highly occupied terrain, one might add. I mean, Birds of Prey, if, if you're going to write about birds in Britain, Birds of Prey, one of the things you, 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 you might reach for, or you might not reach for, because so many good people have written about them before, one of whom happened to be your great-grandfather. But um, leaving that aside for a minute, uh, there's, there's a strong sense also that, that people who write about Birds of Prey have been, in the, in the classic tradition, somehow wounded or damaged. You know, we're talking here about T.H. White, who wrote a magnificent book, The Goshawk, a memoir of his failure as a, as a falconer. We're also talking about J.A. Baker, all these initials, J.A. Baker, who wrote, to my mind, and perhaps to yours, I don't know, the, the, the finest work of, of kind of creative nonfiction about a, about a bird that's ever been written in English, The Peregrine, a book written in 1967, I think, about watching... Peregrine, wild peregrine falcons in the and now wintering grounds in Essex, but a book written out of a kind of self sickness, uh, a kind of diagnosis of himself as a as a damaged, wounded person, and also regarding a bird that at that point in its history was was itself shafted and diseased and sick, drenched in pesticides and insecticides, and was poisoned and on the brink of extinction globally. Even we might continue this little thread of thought for a moment to 
down to the, the much more recent past, Helen MacDonald's extraordinary, savage, beautiful, troubled memoir about seeking a kind of solace through the rearing and training and manning, as the word goes, of a, of a, of a goshawk, a bird that was in some ways for her hoped to, to, to somehow cure her or heal her of her grief. Um, all of those books I know you, you know mm. intimately and well, mm. and I know also your book is in some ways in conversation with those mm. books uh, and, it, and, it, and it acknowledges its, its debts and so forth. But you're ent- you are entering a ground here which is, is already is, is written, mm. but is also... Uh, wh- what did you do with that? Yeah. I mean, where, 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 you, where, you, where you know that people have been <laughs> writing about these birds, but you, you know the way you see them isn't quite how other people see them. Um, one of the things I wanted the book to be was um, not just about the birds. So I had always envisaged envisaged the book as, as being um, a journey through the birds into other places. And so I'm as, as interested in the book, in the landscapes that I go to look for the birds in, the, the stories, the history, the ecology of those landscapes, as I am the birds themselves. So, so yes, it, it's a book about birds, but it's also a book about different landscapes as well. And I think perhaps that's one of the ways that I, 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 I've come, up, come at it slightly differently, in that um, <coughs> I, I, I suppose that I've always seen it as a, a travel book with birds in it, you know? mm-hmm. and not, 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 not solely focused on the birds. Yeah. And, and, and but there are big sections in the book where I depart from the birds quite a lot to, to look at other things sure. and, and, and other people and personalities. Also, I mean, you also reflect the fact that most of the experience of most bird watching is not to see birds. Yeah. <laughs> the experience, of, especially if you're looking for yeah. birds of prey, the experience yeah. of most b- birds of prey watching is to see a bird for three seconds and to wonder what it was, you know. Exactly, and, uh, yeah. So yeah. Why don't you read something, James, yeah. and, and, and then see what yeah. happens. Yeah, um, yeah and I, I wanted... Uh, many of these birds are incredibly rare, and some of them are also very difficult to see in the wild, and I, I wanted in the book to try and get that across, get, a, get across that experience of... You don't just turn up and they appear. Most of the time, I well, I go for days and days and not see anything, and that was very much a part of the experience. And th- there were times when I got very frustrated by that and was desperate to see the birds. But I did come uh, very gradually to realise that actually that is the whole experience of seeing some of these birds. It's their, their absence, which is it, it, it was just as, as important as seeing them. And so, one, one of the birds actually in the book I didn't see at all, which is the Honey buzzard. Um, I may have seen one miles away in the distance, but I can't be sure at all. It was probably a buzzard. It's usually a buzzard. If you think you're seeing what you want to see, it's usually actually a buzzard. Um, <laughs> and, um, and so I, I ended up in that chapter just, just writing about that experience of, of not seeing the bird. Um, and I turned the chapter into a, a piece about, about absence and, and disappearance and things like that instead. Right, I'll read Read something here. Yeah, I want um, to come back to the, don't, don't yeah. remember the honey buzzard because I want to come back to that. But. Yeah. Um, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll start with the osprey, <clears throat> which um, is probably our most dramatic bird of prey, I think, in, in many ways. Um, for those of you who haven't seen an osprey, the way it hunts is it, it hovers much like a kestrel does, like this, high up over the water, and then it will drop down like you see kestrels do, and uh, uh, reposition itself above the fish it has targeted and then when it plunges down it 
actually um, completely submerges in, into the water to try and catch the fish. And then if it's got the fish, it will come up. And about 10 feet above the water, it will then shake itself, much like a dog does. And you see all the water coming off it. It's a, a, an amazing thing to see and to watch. And I went to look for ospreys um, uh, on the south shore of the Murray Firth in the north of Scotland. And I um, <clears throat> spent a few days camped in Colbin Forest, which uh, looks out across uh, Findhorn Bay. It's a shallow bay. Um, and I would just, my, I pitched my tent just on the edge of the trees, would sit there. This is late May, so there was lots of daylight, and watched one particular osprey coming in. Often, sometimes it was 100 feet above the water, just hovering there, but, but it could see anything from that distance, but I, I found it extraordinary, and then it would come down. Sometimes I saw it catch fish, and uh, sometimes it didn't. Um, so this is me uh, sitting in the forest, um, uh, just on, on the, the, the for Corbin Forest is a, was planted at the beginning of the 20th century to stabilize the um, huge sand dune system there. And so um, you, if you put your finger down just a few inches, you'll come to sand. And I'm sitting on top of a, a sand dune, which now has been covered by moss and lichen uh, in the trees. Then he is there, an osprey hovering over the bay. I'm sitting at the edge of the forest, feet dangling over the crest of a dune. I found him a darker shape, hunting above the gulls, a high hanging poise, a stillness there. Someone like the garrulous banter of the gulls, long, dark wings, hovering, scanning, a kite kestrel, a hundred feet above the water. Then he drops, checks, hovers again, then his drop tilts and gathers into a dive. In the last seconds, talons are thrown out in front of him to part the water and the osprey submerges in a great crashing plunge. A heartbeat later, he is rising, hauling the length of his wings out of the sea. Airborne, ten feet up, he pauses, and what happens next is quite beautiful. He shakes the water from his feathers, and a mist of droplets shivers off him like welding sparks. I have never been so close to an osprey. I had watched one before, further south, in the Ochel Hills, in a buzzard tangle over a reservoir. I heard the buzzard calling, looked up lazily, thinking it was two buzzards sparring. But no, not a buzzard. Look at the long, long wings, the carpal joints, angled sharp as cooling peaks. The buzzard was mobbing the larger bird, thumping down towards it, sending the osprey twirling and tumbling to avoid the buzzard's jostling bulk. For days after that encounter, wonder and exhilaration, to finally see an osprey, to grasp and store its shape, he comes closer to the shore, drifting towards my seat on the dunes. I can see the black strip across his eyes, head tilted downwards, reading the water. This time, when he dives, he is so close, I hear the splash, the great cymbal crash of water and bird. I watch the talons go in and then come out again, clawing, empty, a mist. That grip, one fiftieth of a second, is all it takes to clamp around a fish. The outer toe reversed, so the fish is held in front and behind, clamped tight in the foot's sandpaper vice. So, as, as well as these fifteen species of, of, of raptor, you've you just, you took it upon yourself to kind of find at least two companions in your journey, in a way, from Orkney to Devon. One is your great-grandfather, Seton Gordon, who I, whose voice I remember from some fantastic BBC yeah. archive, slightly squeaky, yeah. and whose appearance is a bit like a ptarmigan. 
<laughs> slightly kind of mad, small eyes, but yeah. amazingly intense. Yeah. I mean, I don't, um, you, 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 you wore a, a kilt every day of his life, and it was this old tattered kilt. <laughs> then, uh, yeah. uh, I should have brought some photographs. I, well, I've the kilt, if, if you could have the kilt, that'd be funny. <laughs> uh, the second one, I mean, we, maybe we should talk more about Sidney Gordon, but the second one is this extraordinary character called uh, William McGillivray, who maybe, this is, a, uh, a, 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 this is him. He was an amazing, uh, much underrated and much unsung uh, artist from the early 19th century uh, who ended up collaborating with Audubon uh, in Britain. Audubon needed someone to write. Audubon, famously the son of a slave from Haiti, uh, not so strong on the English language, etc., um, etc., et yeah. magnificent artist, ended up recruiting McGillivray in Britain where the printing presses were better. Uh, to, to help him write the texts to illustrate the birds of America. Is that right? That's right. That's but you find a different story to yeah. tell about McGillivray, a journey, particularly a journey he took from Aberdeen to London, but also discover in him an extraordinary, uh, I mean, extraordinary ornithologist, an extraordinary botanist and looker at nature, but a wonderful writer as well, mm. an amazing kind of feisty, dynamic mm. prose writer who you sort of adopt as a kind of companion. Tell us about that. Yeah, I, well, to tell you briefly about McGilvery, he um, was born in Aberdeen in 1796, died in, also in Aberdeen in 1852. He was brought up mostly by his uncle on a farm in the very southwest corner of the Isle of Harris. And um, McGilvery uh, enrolled at Aberdeen University when he was about 13 or 14, which wasn't unusual then. And he he used to walk back and forth to Aberdeen from Harris at the beginning and end of the university term. And he, he's very much a self-taught naturalist. He, he learned everything, often on these walks. Um, he, apparently, he used to know all the Latin names of the plants that grew on the south shore of Loch Ness. And he um, was very ambitious to become a naturalist, an ornithologist. And in his early 20s, when he was living in Aberdeen, he felt, in order to realize that ambition, he needed to go and see the collection of birds in the British Museum just here. And so he, one morning he set off, this is September 1819, he set, walked out of his door um, and started walking to London to go and see the, the collection. Um, though he did take the most direct route, and this is very typical of McGilvery, um, by the time he crossed the border into England, he'd already walked uh, over 500 miles. And he was um, uh, easily... Um, diverted by things in the natural world that interested him. So that if he thought there might be some interesting alpine flora at the top of a mountain, he'd scramble up that mountain and collect the samples of plants. So that by the time he arrived in London, about six weeks later, his knapsack was full to the brim with all these plants that he'd collected along the way. And, and wonderfully, many of these specimens of plants are held by the University of Aberdeen, and I went to look at them as part of my research for the book, and they have McGilvery's handwriting beneath each specimen, and he, he uh, says where he collected them, what the date was, and things like that. And incredibly, given some of these specimens are 200 years old, um, some of the flowers still have their colours in them, which I, I find uh, amazing and very moving. Um, so so that, that briefly is McGilvery. Um, he, he was someone I didn't know very much about when I started the book. I, I knew that he had published a book on birds of prey called Descriptions of the Rapacious Birds of Great Britain in the 1830s. And it was one book amongst many that I wanted to look at. And when I looked at his book, I there was something about his writing, something about his voice in particular, which I, I felt very drawn to. And 
I went off and read more of his work, and I, I discovered that there were two journals in existence. One of these was the journal of this walk that he made to London. And uh, the more I read of him, the more I just sort of became really involved with him and his life and his work. And I started to think that it would be interesting to try and map his walk from uh, Aberdeen to London loosely alongside my own journey from the north of Scotland down to the south of England. And so what I do in the book is pick up McGilvery at certain points through the book to, to explore his, his writing and his work. And um, the, the best way to describe his involvement in the book is that he, he sort of took over it, really. And I, I didn't set out for that to happen at all. But I, 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 it's almost like I sort of fell in love with him. He just took over things for me. And I, and I couldn't stop um, writing about him and exploring his work. And I, 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 I feel very grateful that I found him sense. I'm grateful that he became involved in the book because not only did he help breathe some structure into the book, which I felt the book was lacking, he, he also um, he just helped me think about the birds and, and, and seeing the birds in a different way. His, his great achievement, I think, as an ornithologist is his is, is adherence to accuracy. He, he, he wanted to describe the birds as fully and comprehensively as he, as he could. So he was a, a trained anatomist, and a lot of his descriptions of birds are quite technical. They involve the length of gizzards and things like this. But the, he, his approach was that you had to describe the internal organs and the, the color and the shape and the length of them if you were to describe the, the bird in its fullness. It was no good just describing what the bird looks like. You also need to understand how it works, the, its, its organs and mechanics of the bird. So... Um, I relied on him a lot to just think about different ways of writing about the words and uh, the birds and, and trying to write about them faithfully and accurately. I think. But he was also a field man, wasn't he? I mean, he yeah. had a big beef about scientists who, who who spent their time naming things from the comfort of their own yeah. laboratories yeah. and never actually went out as he did and got bed bugs and yeah. uh, and, and yeah. had fights with local people and and kind yeah. of misunderstood accents and and carried everything in his rucksack and, yeah, and at the same time writing down everything that he saw i mean he's he's an extraordinary discovery or rediscovery and and, and really really valuable have you got a, anything about him yeah i could read a bit from him um, he he's best known for um, a book a five volume book uh, a history of british birds um, which was really a complete flop during his lifetime and um, the critics um, hated the first three volumes particularly and one of the things they um, they um, highlighted that they didn't like was 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 the field notes that the, there were these he calls them the ornitholo- ornithological field lessons and that for me they're by far the best bits in the book they, they describe him being out there on a hillside writing about not just the bird he's looking for but the flora the weather all sorts of things they're very vivid descriptive passages and um, yeah, the critics just thought they were affected. <laughs> Poetry, basically, but they're not at all. They're they're wonderful pieces of writing. Um, so he he was he was un, unfortunate in lots of ways. He I think he was unfortunately he was he was over, eclipsed by Darwin, who was a contemporary of his, as many other people were. Um, and it, I think that's one of the reasons that his, his work became very quickly neglected, and he also became a very forgotten figure. He's also a fabulous artist. I mean, yeah, his paintings I mean, are yeah, second to none. Show, um, this is uh, I mean, uh, his paintings are. Um, Extraordinarily good. I mean, the yeah. best bird paintings of of, of their. Or would have thought that he was the greatest uh, British um, bird painter that there was. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you can see some of these. They're, all the paintings are held in the Natural History Museum Library, and um, 
unfortunately they sit in storage there. But I went to look at them, and they are absolutely stunning. They're all life-size paintings. Um, so this one of the heron, this is the, you know, the, the original of the life-size. Um, and not just he wasn't just an ornithologist; he was also a very uh, talented botanist, uh, geologist, a conchologist. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row, dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. As well as somebody who studies mollusks, but he was also a sort of tragic figure somehow. I mean, it was it was the kind of definition of the bird watcher, even before the word bird watcher. Yeah. You know, the sad yeah. man who is intensely in love with something that no one else really quite understands. Yeah, uh, who goes on a walk that takes him six weeks when it should have taken him yeah. three weeks. <laughs> yeah. Walks eight hundred miles when he should have walked five hundred yeah. miles. Uh, yeah. who, who kind of willfully misunderstands the human world at the same time as he's beautifully, brilliantly understanding the natural, the non-human yeah. world. Yeah, he was very stubborn. I mean, there were lots of opportunities on the walk to London for him to get onto a stagecoach and just get to London, <laughs> um, but he didn't. He hates it. Manchester, which is brilliant. Yeah, he yeah. does, yeah. yeah. And in, in Glasgow, um, he gets bitten by a bed bug and uh, it swells up, the bite swells up to the size of a hen's egg on his neck. Um, he ne- nearly gets into several fights along the way. He, he didn't like company when he was walking. He walked very quickly, um, and he, he liked to be alone to think while he was walking. Occasionally on, on his walk, he describes people coming up just um, wanting to have a chat, and he's really aggressive to them and says, look, go away. You know, <laughs> farmers you, and various people. You almost, I mean, you, I wanted to ask you a little bit about this. Maybe you'll be talking about this in a minute, but... Um, there's an extraordinary description that he writes himself of, of, of early on in his life of going out to shoot a golden eagle in Harris yeah. um, and, and, and the kind of awfulness of the recoil of the rifle at first that damages him, his shoulder and, his, uh, and, and the chicken he's got as a, as a decoy. But you, you write about it amazingly beautifully. You use his prose, which is sublimely good, clear, funny, direct. But you also... I think you add things into Absolutely, that. Yeah, you I, say I really, he writes, yeah. he folds up. The, he, his yeah. own text describes himself as getting bored with the newspaper that he's reading in this little hole in the ground whilst mm. he's waiting for the eagle to come down. Yeah. And you say he rolls up, rolls up the newspaper into a nest yeah. of wrens. Because it's raining, and I imagine the newspaper getting wet. So you're doing so something differently here. You're using this. You're using this, this, this raw material, this raw man. And you're wanting to push it a little bit further, somehow mm. further towards you? Perhaps, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I wanted to... When I, when I first started writing those sections, I wrote them in the uh, third person, and it wasn't quite working. I, I felt I wasn't getting close enough to McGilvery. And so I switched to the second person and started to address him as if I was writing a letter to him. Um, and that way I found I was able to just try and uh, 
I'm able to inhabit him a bit more. And that's why, and that's when I started to enhance those descriptions from his journals. Mm -hmm. And then um, that, that's how I delivered the manuscript. And my editor said, you're on a second person, it's tricky. And, and he was right. And, and I switched it back to the third person. Mm -hmm. But by then, I'd achieved what I wanted to do in, in getting closer to McGilvery. So, so mm -hmm. it was fine. Um, yes, yeah, yeah, well, no, we'll I will be the judge of that, whether it's fine or not. But, yeah. but no, it was it fine is, in terms of what fine. I wanted to achieve, which was to get closer to him. That, that, that's why. The thing about um, shooting eagles, that they were, um, eagles then were vermin, and um, they, um, one of the techniques for um, trying to shoot them was they, um, the, the shepherds would build a, a, a hide of stones then crawl into the stones and leave some bait and wait for the eagle to come and take the bait. And the, the description McGilvery talks about is, is using a chicken from his uncle's farm, which he, he pegs, and then he waits for the eagle to come. And this is when he's very young, uh, probably only a teenager when he shoots the, the golden eagle. Uh, but yeah, I'll read a bit. Um, if I can find it. Um, but this is uh, McGilvery. He's got to Carlisle on his walk. So I'll just pick him up there. Beneath the sandstone glow of Carlisle Castle, McGilvery goes into a bank and exchanges his five Scotch notes for English ones. He searches among the back streets for cheap lodgings, but there is nothing available. No one will give him change for one of his notes. So he heads out of the city along the Keswick Road. It is a shock how sudden the dark comes on. There is so little preamble. McGilvery arrived in Carlisle at five o'clock with no sense that the day might be dissolving. By seven, he is out on the road to Keswick, and there is not a trace of daylight left. The night is so assertive now. He does not say why, but the next inn refuses him lodging, though his appearance cannot have helped. He looks so tattered and road-weary, like some wandering scarecrow come down out of the north. Half a mile on, he comes to another inn, and it's no beds here, mister, but he orders supper anyway, because by now he is exhausted, has not eaten a thing all day except for a two-penny cake. But here is a new difficulty which she could not have seen coming. The innkeeper can give McGilvery change for his note, but she cannot accept a Bank of England note. And no, it's no good that McGilvery only exchanged it at the bank in Carlisle a few, few hours ago. She is very sorry, and her husband is sorry too. You do sound like an honest fellow, but you see, there are Bank of England forgeries circulating through Cumberland, and you must understand they have been cheated once before and resolved to never take a Bank of England note again. It is too much, this small injustice, and McGilvery hears himself almost yelling that he is hungry and tired and can scarcely proceed upon his journey. And yes, you do seem like an honest fellow, really, and they are very sorry, but it will not do. So McGilvery is back out through the door and trudging along the road, and something about the rhythm of walking once more, reverting to what his muscles know, calms him. But it does not alleviate his hunger, and he is brittle with tiredness. It is cloudy, with slivers of moonlight showing between the clouds. The road has narrowed to a lane. Tall hedges loom up on either side. The lane is exceptionally muddy, and McGilvery is soon wet to his ankles. He notice when, notices when the lane sinks beneath the hedgerows that he is walking through a seam of shadow, and he sees how the night's gradient can change so quickly as he passes through pools of darker, cooler air. Go on. It goes on quite a long way, that one, so I'll stop there. Yeah. It's, it's all he, good. Uh, so you've got this fantastic, amazing second-to-none descriptions of seeing these birds, even fleeting moments with fantastic birds, Montague's harriers, hen harriers, marsh harriers, all the whole 15 the thing. You've got your McGilvray 
being this sort of slightly urban, bitter thing going through the, you know, this, this thing, this sort of sophisticated literary voice who doesn't really have a subject yet, somehow, going through this book. But at the same time, to me, this third theme that you're incredibly original with, in a, in a way, you want to write about places... You want, you're very interested in absence and in the place, in the way in which a, a place, a landscape, manifests itself often by what it isn't or what it was, but what it is no longer is. And this is a repeated theme in the book. You talk a lot about, and very movingly, about the clearances. You also talk more unexpectedly about uh, the uh, Nazi bombing of Coventry or in your chapter about the Peregrine. Yeah. You talk about keeping squatters off land in mid-Wales. You talk about um, the strange kind of dereliction of uh, the North Kent marshes. Yeah. What, is it, what is it about those the way you saw a way into those landscapes, these sort of wrecked places that were, that were less populated in some ways than they are now mm. once, yeah. I mean, that were more populated than they are now once, and the birds of prey that sometimes you see and sometimes you don't. How did you, how did you see those things coming together? What, what is it that, 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 that made those landscapes of, of absence and the birds in them connect for you? I, I wanted to think about a way of writing about the bird's tragic history and the poignancy of that um, without just explicitly writing about it. I, I did try to write more explicitly about it and, and found that the writing wasn't working that well. And, and I thought that if I could um, perhaps pursue some themes through the book to do with absence, disappearance, which all these birds have suffered themselves, particularly in the heyday of persecution in the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, that, that might be a way of exploring uh, the, the birds' tragedy through the landscape. And so, so that's what I've tried to do with, 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 those, uh, with those themes. And I think there are two other things as well. That One is that when you do go out into large parts of the British landscape, they are empty places. You know, people don't, don't live so much in a lot of these landscapes, and so that, that's just the experience of, of a lot of the British landscape. They, they are empty. Um, and going back to McGilvery, he, he was also somebody, as he did in lots of other ways with the book, who, who led me into this, because he, when he was on the Isle of Harris um, at the beginning of the 19th century, the island was undergoing huge social, social changes um, through uh, clearance of uh, the townships on the west coast, the fertile side of the island, across to the east coast. And so he witnessed this. And in fact, in one of his journals, he, he describes his, his uncles uh, being summoned by the laird to a meeting where the, the laird's factor wanted to evict his uncle from his farm. And McGilvery goes along to this meeting and is so outraged by this that he, he stands up and yells at them and says, you can't do this, you know, and, and manages to win the day through through his sheer, sheer persuasion. Um, so, so again, there's an example of McGilvery sort of opening up that thematic scene um, because that chapter happens quite early on in the north of Scotland in the Western Isles. And it, it, the theme opened up and I just followed it down through the book as, a, as I travelled south, I think. So there's, there's all sorts of questions about land owning and, and what, what that might mean and what it might mean for a bird even. Mm. You know, how'd, yeah. how'd, I mean, you write absolutely beautifully about 
Montague's Harrier experience in the fens of eastern England, um, a, a tiny encounter, actually, yeah. but, but which nonetheless demonstrates, in, a, in the way that you write it, that the bird is in a kind of full possession of, of, of its world, even though the world is a hedged yeah. and curtailed world that, that mankind has created. Um, well, that's a very interesting place to, to position yourself in this world of nature writing, in, in, in a way. There's, there are kind of problematic um, questions about, both about the way we, we encounter nature in, in, in those sorts of landscapes, but also what we, what we make of what, what the, the leftover bits of the wild, which is what those raptors represent in a way, are, are doing. At the same time, I saw five species of birds of prey on the way to this talk. Mm. Um, a peregrine in Bristol, which is not unusual, mm. uh, hunting for pigeons at the station. A sparrowhawk in Bristol before I got on the train because I was early, mm. nervous about getting, being late. And then a kestrel, a buzzard, pretty standard, now buzzard standard, and then these amazing sequence of between Didcot and Reading, two of the most boring places in the <laughs> world, uh, of red kites. I mean, there are now... 25 red kites between Didcot and Reading, if, if anyone cares to look out of the window. Mm. So um, birds of prey, oddly, are doing rather well, or some of them are at yeah. least are doing rather well yeah. in this kind of debased, ruined landscape that we're, we're making. They're no longer, as they might have been for your great-grandfather, oddly, special birds for special people. Where, where are we going yeah. now with, yeah. with, with raptors? I, I was very aware of that. And when I was writing the book, and I'm uh, aware that um, it's easy to just concentrate on the charismatic species and in doing so neglect um, smaller species who are actually uh, suffering terribly at the moment, songbirds and um, farmland birds like grey partridges and uh, turtle ducks and birds like that. Um, and I, I sort of go back to what I wanted the book to be, which was a journey through the birds. So I, I wanted to not just concentrate on the birds, but use the birds as a way into writing about the landscape. So I try to, in some of the chapters, to write also about the ecology of the, of the, of the wider landscape, but use the, the bird of prey, which is at the top of that landscape, if you like, as the chief predator, as a way into exploring some of those things. And so I hope that I don't neglect that in the book. No, no, I, I mean, I, 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 I agree completely, and I think actually although you're, it's easier to fall in love with your early chapters, which are about kind of wild places and wild birds in wild places, what you're doing when you get towards, if you like, the home counties yeah. and the, these more quotidian birds like sparrowhawks and buzzards is, is to really test what's going on here. You yeah. know, what, what, what is the meaning of these birds that have found a way to live alongside us? I mean, the, uh, the hen harrier, sadly, yeah. hasn't really found a way to live alongside us, nor, nor the golden eagle. Mm -hmm. um, and they're marvellous for that that refusal of all that, all that failure, the buzzard eats worms. Mm -hmm. I, mean, it's, I mean, it's fantastically yeah. successful. Yeah. It's came out, I still think of a buzzard. Buzzard, for me, is still a bit like drinking cider in London. <laughs> I mean, they feel like the West Country and or yeah. the, the North Country come to town, but they're doing amazingly well. Mm -hmm. Commonest raptor in Britain now. Um, I, and, but then at, at a certain price, perhaps, I mean, is, this is the question, finally, um, in the end, some of the raptors, the most successful raptors, become less rapacious, if you like, or become less charismatic, mm. you know, in, the, in, their, in their weight, in their struggle and success at living alongside us. 
the buzzard, you know, as we now know, eats mostly earthworms and um, bits of old crap left on the <laughs> motorway edges yeah. and things like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, where they're yeah. no longer quite the bird that McGillivray had them as. Yeah, yeah. <coughs> For me, despite the fact they're much more common now, um, this is a very personal response. I, I, that doesn't in any way diminish my wonder at, at the birds. So I never tire of going out and seeing buzzards, and I never certainly never tire of hearing them. I think it's one of the most beautiful sounds in, in the countryside. So um, I, don't, I don't think I could ever get used to them, even though you see them yeah. often. Um, I came down as well through the Chilterns on the train today and saw lots of red kites and you know, stop working because there were red kites there. So, um, yeah, I, 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 that, but that, it's, a, it's a subjective response, but I just, I just can't envision myself ever tiring or, or just becoming used to them. That they are, they, they, they're also, <clears throat> even though they're common, they're also capable of always surprising you, I think, if you, if you watch them carefully. So I, one of the things I found with buzzards is that they uh, are capable of, all sorts of things I never expected them to be capable of. Astonishing bursts of speed. They can hover like a kestrel, you know, and, uh, and they're, they're able to move through woodland, den quite dense woodland at speed, you know, much like a hawk can do. And I, I didn't know they were capable of that at all until I, I spent some time actually watching them do this. So I had an encounter uh, not long ago where I was in a wood, watched a big bird of prey come in so fast through the trees. I thought it must be a goshawk. It was quite a big bird, but it was a buzzard, you know, just... Uh, shot through and landed on, on a beach. So, so they, they're, they're always capable of surprising me. And, and have, you got a have you got a last reading before yeah. we maybe... Uh, is it a sparrowhawk or a buzzard reading? Yeah, I'll do sparrowhawk, yeah. yeah. Um, Does everybody know what a sparrowhawk is? It's this fantastically... Well, you should say what a sparrowhawk is. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, the male and the female are very different. Uh, they're very different in size. The female's about twice the weight of the male. Um, and relatively common, but it's rare to see them. Or if you do see them, you only see them very briefly. Um, and they are chiefly avian predators. They hunt um, songbirds. Um, well, the females perhaps capable and quite often take birds as large as uh, a wood pigeon. If you see a pile of wood pigeon feathers lying on the ground, it's probably a, yeah. a female sparrowhawk who's, who's Pull back the, the curtains work. in the morning and there's something eating something on your lawn. Yeah. It's a sparrowhawk. <laughs> yeah. But one, one of the frustrations I found with the book... Um, which I try to address in the Sparrowhawk chapters. Whenever I told people what I was doing, uh, they, often the response was, what, what, I was uh, what book I was writing, the response was often, oh, yeah, I hate Sparrowhawks, you know, they just eat the garden birds. And, um, uh, and, and uh, my, my response has al always been, well, you know, you should worry if you don't have Sparrowhawks. They're, they're an indication that you, the, the ecosystem around your garden is, is relatively healthy. And they wouldn't be there if there weren't, wasn't the prey there. And I, and I have, did try in this chapter to um, explain the relationship between the hawks and their avian prey quite carefully because it's much more complex than people, um, I think, think. And, uh, and actually, the hawks, um, they, they simply stabilize the population of their prey species. So if you remove the hawks from the environment, their, their prey species, their population level would, would actually stay the same because other controlling factors would come in, uh, chiefly uh, starvation would be the most prominent of those. So it's better to be eaten by a sparrowhawk than to die because you haven't got enough to eat. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> yeah. So the, the, the setting is uh, a hedge uh, just um, on the edge of the village where I live in South Warwickshire. 
and <clears throat> I'm inside the hedge, and the view from the hedge is um, out towards a woodland, mostly oak, and looking out across the canopy, um, and I have quite a good view of a large section of the wood in it early in the morning, waiting for sparrowhawks. I'm in the hedge before dawn. I'm glad of the track, the way it allows me to avoid the wood, to slip into the hedge without waking the wood. I'm just in time to catch the change of shift, a muntjac crossing the field, heading back to the wood. Crows and jackdaws coming the other way, pour from the trees like black smoke. The early morning soundscape in this order, tawny owl, the screech echo of a pair, jackdaw chatter, a moorhen's alarm from the moat behind the track, a raven's croak, pheasant very loud inside the wood, sets off another pheasant the whole field away. A buzzard calling on the saw, a magpie's rattle, next comes the staggered departure from the roost. Crows and jackdaws, the first to leave in their tatamalian flocks, magpies in their slipstream, then the kestrel, keeking, wide awake. The dawn itself is split between the buzzard light, which is a murky pre-dawn light, and the hawk light, which comes soon after dawn. The buzzard is always out of the roost before the hawk, hunting when there seems barely enough light to see in. It is only when the light has really broken through, cleaned and sharpened the edges of the wood, that the sparrowhawk comes out of the trees from its roost, silent, quick, broad-winged, sometimes a single hawk, sometimes a pair, chasing each other low across the field, turning knots through one another, playful, sinuous like otters. Usually just a fleeting glimpse, the hawk bursts out of the trees, shoots low across the field and is gone. But that brief glimpse is enough. I long for it and long to get back to the hedge. Some mornings I do not see the hawks, but because they use the wood to roost, I often catch the birds when they depart at dawn. And so, over the weeks and months, I build up a store of hawk sightings, a steady accumulation of wonder. One morning, I return to the hedge to find that it has been cut right back by a tractor's hedge cutter. It is almost unrecognizable, a shredded, splintered mess. I feel miserable and a little silly that I have become so possessive of a hedge, but I realize it will grow back and thicken up in the spring and there is still space for me to slot in and conceal my shape. There are some mornings when the wind seems to get inside the birds. Jackdaws are bundled out of the wood in erratic, swirling columns. Pigeons pour out of the trees in their hundreds. A red kite comes over high and fast through the dawn with the wind behind it. A tiny gold crest is made larger, rounder by the breeze, puffing out its feathers. A hawk goes up from the wood, squabbles with a crow, and dives fast and steep back into the center of the wood. Then she is climbing again, spinning up from the trees. She banks slowly around above the wood and out across the field. Another hawk joins her there, and they reel together high above the village. Because I am so absorbed in watching the hawks, I do not notice that the deer has walked right up to me. So when I look down, I am astonished to see her, a diminutive muntjac, just three feet away, a black eye staring at me. I freeze, but the deer hasn't got a hold of me, hasn't seen me properly. The hedge, despite its crew cut, seems to still disguise me. The muntjac ambles past, stiff, stumpy gait, lumpy brown coat. Then my scent pricks her. She kicks her hind feet up and bucks away across the field, white rump flashing as she goes. When she reaches the wood, she slows to a trot, glances back, barks, and hurries on into the wood. For a while, I can see her white tail signaling, like a light 
bathing inside the trees. The sparrow, the last but one species in the book, well, the last species in the book. That's the last chapter. 15 species, fantastic writing. Uh, So please uh, join me in in thanking James and wishing his book all the best. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. 